This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine. My name is Kyle. I think I'm Dave, but I'm no longer sure. Existentialism. And I'm the machine. This is a... Maybe maybe we should start calling the machine Sart. Maybe that would help. <laughs> we'll call the machine The Other. A podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. We have also somehow found ourselves here back on Earth, but we're literally in the year 1982. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the movie Losing Ground. I got that book on Junaid. Oh, good. It's the finest analysis of being an outsider I've ever read. I'm glad you found it. There are books that can make a difference in a life. You're terrific. Your husband appreciates you. My husband? Got you in a close-up, Professor. You look just like Pearl McCormick in Scar of Shame, Philadelphia Color Plays, 1927. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show, since the machine doesn't, you know, help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do do a bonus episode over there. Do-do, I said. Now, before we get into talking about this week's film, we do have to do some story progression. Oh, God. So we've, of course, we've been back here on Earth for a few weeks here now, Dave. But we're now stuck in the year 1982. It seems like for every step forward, we have like three steps back with this. We Didn't were we come flung across space we were, last season. Yeah, I mean, our- now we're back here on Earth, but we're not in the right year. Okay. I don't know. What ideas do you have? What does that mean? What, uh, like in general, philosophically? Yeah. Uh, oh, that we're back yeah. oh, on Earth? How, how do we get back to, I guess it's 2022 now? Oh, oh. In Earth years? Well, presumably we spend another 52 weeks watching movies and talking about them <laughs> and just see what happens. And then eventually the machine will do something to change our stasis. Yeah, I don't know. Massage therapy? Dave, here's what I think we should do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when life throws you lemons, you open a massage parlor. Do we have the insurance for that? Well, it's a good question to have because this is what I've been thinking, Dave. Now that we're back here on Earth, we don't have the safety of the machine, which was giving us shelter and food. Oh, I thought it was stuff. Yeah, I thought it was the harbinger of harbinger harbinger of doom. Mm-hmm. Please, that was my father. I prefer destroyer of worlds. Oh, I mean, the, the the machine definitely is. But because we were so sheltered up in the in the spaceship, now that we're back here on Earth, we don't have those amenities anymore. Mm. I'm, I'm thinking this uh, abandoned warehouse that we've set up our podcast equipment. You know, I think we could just, like, spruce this up a little bit. Throw some, throw some paint on it. We need to earn some scratch. Some bread. Some money. Right. Some money, some money. Some moolah. Some bucks. It's 1982. What is the best business to open up in 1982? Oh. Yeah, I just watched Physical on Apple TV. We could start aerobics. Oh, right. No, we're in the past. Dave, yeah, you don't know Look what that at is. my pear-shaped body. <laughs> there is no way I'm going to open up uh, a fitness center. Uh, I'm thinking this, Dave. Yeah. We open up an arcade. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess so. Sure. 
Anyways, I got a guy. He's going <laughs> to deliver some some machines here. We had a talk here a few weeks ago about physical versus streaming media. Oh my god! And uh, I won't let you. I won't let people in on how the Twitter poll went, but it looks like it's a dead heat yeah. of like half and half preferring streaming versus physical media. I want to bring up another thing. Oh, we're still arguing. Oh my God. Okay. You yeah. know what really grinds my gears? Let it out. Let it all out. This is kind of like therapy parallel, session. but sort of the same thing. I am calling it the scourge of director's cuts. Mm. It frustrates me so much. I don't mind the, the, the conception of a director's cut, quote unquote. Cool. Make them. Release them. That's awesome. I just hate the fact that for certain films, I just cannot find the original film <laughs> the way that it was released. I have one very specific example, but I don't know if you've run into this where it's like, I just want to watch the original film and all that's available is a director's cut. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, Star Wars is a prime example, I think, from populist yeah. culture. Um Blade Runner is a weird one. Yeah, Blade Runner is like yeah. <laughs> a really hard one yeah. to find originals. I mean, the Blu-ray I just threw out had all four editions, but to be honest, one of the reasons why I checked it is I don't watch it. I think I watched the first one when I first bought it. I, you know, I, I was thinking about your poll and I was thinking about the difference. Uh, is, is the machine's poll, but sure. Sure. Uh, the machine named Kyle Marshall. I, I was thinking about... <laughs> Uh, the difference between uh, revisionism and archivists. I don't think there's an ism. You know, you are clearly in the camp, um, and Sarah was too, about uh, this idea that we need to value how things were exactly when they were presented to us. And the extreme opposite is what you're talking about, where these studios and directors want to eliminate any history <laughs> of mistakes they've made in their mind and just destroy all evidence. And we do need to find a happy medium like we kind of need both but we live in a society where they can't coexist apparently so uh there's mm. no answer kyle there's no correct answer i guess so it's just that it is it is sometimes frustrating the, the example i wanted to bring up this is a very odd one i realize there is no way to watch the original theatrical cut of amadeus oh i didn't know um that. so a movie I love, yeah. but the director's cut adds in 20 minutes of footage oh, wow. that, in my opinion, you don't really need. Yeah. It was cut for a reason. It slows a down the movie. Yeah. It's like, it's already two hours and 40 minutes and puts it to like a full three hours. And go to any store, any streaming site that Amadeus is on, it's always a director's cut. And it's like, no, I, just, I don't want to watch this with those scenes put in there. I just want to watch the original flow of the film the other big one that's actually coming more and more prevalent is um again whether you like the movies or not is irrelevant is the warriors ah right because walter hill i think it's walter hill who did his director's cut added in the like these animated interstitial title sequences gross that most fans hate yeah. <laughs> like they just hate them I mean, like that and it's like the only way to watch that movie now right. in most places so it's like it's just it's frustrating more than anything else yeah I and mean, the fun one my brother and i keep talking about is aliens and the machine gun in the hallway scene um like the robot machine mm -hmm. guns i mean that's a great suspense scene right when you're counting down mm -hmm. the uh, ammunition box apparently that's just disappeared i don't know I mean, the, Ridley Scott added that whole uh, intro in Aliens with Newt's family on the uh, space barge or whatever. I mean, it's it's fine. It, you always have to ask why Newt's in it, uh, other than it's a good plot device to make uh, Sigourney right. Weaver uh, be an angry mom. I, I have to be, I, I am pro-Newt, so I know I'm on the <laughs> I'm an outlier in that uh, situation. But the, um, the problem, I guess, in the light of our previous conversation is that it's not like these exist on the physical media either, right? There's a culture problem. Uh, it would be mm -hmm. different 
I suppose. I mean, the Blade Runner is one example where they did it right, in my opinion, at least with that one release where they had four versions on in one box. Right. But you're right. Uh, it's very hard to find quote unquote original content. Or like on Disney, you said they blurted, uh, bleeped out some swear words. Not bleep. They just like redub them to them. what they want. I just, yeah, I just, have, I just find those things so frustrating. It's let's leave the movies the way that they are. I guess this is me being an old man. There, I, I, I think there is a difference, like you mentioned, about there being like revisionist. Like I'm going and actually recutting my film. But then a difference between like we will not make the originals ever available again. Mm. It'll be very interesting to see. There was rumors that Disney was going to, as an option, release the original Star Wars trilogy with no added special mm. features. Like just exactly how they came out in theaters. The cutout boxes around the TIE Fighters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that's ever going to actually happen. After but Lucas dies. It probably will be, actually. Probably will be. Mm-hmm. Every director is a little bit different. It seems like there's certain directors who get to a certain age and that they, they, they like to tinker, like to go back to their old films and be like, oh, I want to change this and do this differently. And I find it's fascinating. You see the difference between Lucas. Even Francis Ford Coppola did this with Apocalypse Now. He had to go and do like, I'm going to recut this whole thing. Stallone is doing that with his Rocky movies. He's doing some recuts and stuff like that. And then you have Spielberg, who did it one time. And then reversed it because he was like, I shouldn't have done this in the first place, which we'll talk about when we get to E.T. this year. I don't know if you remember this. They went back in and digitally edited out the guns when he flies up with the bike and there's guys standing there with guns. They made them be walkie talkies instead. And then he changed it back for the next re-release. He's like, I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have gone back and changed it. It was That was how it was released originally. That's how it's going to stay from now on. Uh, this is a psychological discussion. I mean, when you bring up mm-hmm. the revisionists, there are largely people who are past their prime and are rueful mm-hmm. of their life currently. <laughs> you know, you've got, uh, really Scott's a weird one. Uh, you know, Blade Runner is just such a fascinating anomaly, I think, in filmmaking. It's just a weird movie, uh, which is why I like it so much. But like St- Stallone, he, I mean, I know he's producing Creed and stuff, but Creed 2 sucked. And, you know, he he's looking back, he's trying to rebuild all these franchises because he doesn't have you know, a lot left in the tank and Francis Ford Coppola stopped making relevant movies after Godfather 2. (laughs) (laughs) True true, true enough. But Spielberg, we learned... I don't know. Have you seen Jack? (laughs) I mean, that is pretty culturally relevant. Spielberg's interesting because as we discovered... He has, uh, I mean, he's unique in this, kind of like Clint Eastwood. I mean, they're opposites in their approach, but he's so intentional and he's such a uh, accomplished filmmaker, whether people respect him, you know, for philosophical depth or whatever, who gives a shit. I can't imagine someone like Spielberg looking back and saying, you know, the the melting faces in Raiders, I just, I don't, I can't live with it anymore. You know, we should CGI it. Like, he knows that's a great movie. <laughs> he knows what he did. Right. He, knows it's, he knows it's of its time. And so, he made Crystal Skull instead. And I don't know about the haters, but I actually didn't mind that movie, you know, as stupid as wow. the premise was. But. David Young coming out in defense of Crystal Skull. I know. Uh, yeah. That was not on my 2022 bingo <laughs> card, Dave. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. No, it, it's 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 true. I think it, it depends on the filmmaker. It depends on where they are in their career, whether they're trying to like recapture glory, whatever it happens to be. Like there's always been that discussion too, just using Spielberg as an example. Should we go back and with the digital effects that we have now, make the shark look better in Jaws. And I'm very anti that. I'm like, yeah, sure, you could. What's you can make point? it look like amazing, right. I'm sure. But right. I don't know. There's something fun about the fact that it looks like a rubber yeah, <laughs> thing yeah. at the end. I don't know. There's a bit of charm to that to me. Just the same way I have a bit of charm if I go back and watch, I don't know, I'm trying to think of it like a really old movie, 
like uh, it's a wonderful life or something like that. But so yeah, like I mean, I can tell they're on a set, and that's not real snow that's falling. But whatever. What's the point, though? Right, <laughs> it still works. Yeah, and uh, that archivist. I mean, that's not even archivist mentality. That's just disrespecting the process of making films in 1976. Uh, what's Jaws? 76, 77, 75, 75. So, um, you didn't have. THX or LucasArts at the time to build right. all these like, or now Unreal Engine or whatever they're using. You had rubber and latex and uh, sculptors, you know, primitive, essentially photography and understanding what sharks even look like. And uh, that's what makes that movie Jaws, right? It's not even supposed mm -hmm. to be a real shark. The real sharks don't eat boats, right? It's it's a movie, you know, and, and that's what Spielberg's so good at. That's something that these midlife or post-life crisis <laughs> directors uh, lose sight of. They don't respect themselves anymore. And uh, like George Lucas is notorious at this. He is the least confident billionaire I've ever heard of. This is me psychoanalyzing. So I, I, I apologize, but it's almost as if they cannot accept that what they couldn't do is what people enjoy about yeah. their movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, and it's blinders and I, I don't know. There's echo chambers, even pre-existing the internet. You know, if you, you're surrounded by people that tell you you do a great job every time, you, you lean one way. Mm -hmm. But if you're surrounded by people who are criticizing little nuances, then you, you twist the other way. It's weird. We're susceptible to these things. Like not to get too far away from today's movie, but today's movie uh, like uh, sort of leans towards this theme, uh, rational mm -hmm. experience versus emotional experience. And that I think uh, artists are particularly in this weird gray area where you need a process. You can't literally just, and this is why I hate abstract, abstract. You can't just throw paint on a wall and then justify some shit after. There has to be some structured thought around it, whether you, know, you understand it or not. And that leaves you pretty vulnerable because then mm -hmm. people pick at it and they're, they're pointing fingers at you, right? Like your soul, yeah. Kyle. Souls are overrated. Well, that's a good segue. I, I was actually going to ask you to explain logic to me, but um, we're running long here. So. Fuck. Well, okay, I'll, I'll explain logic to you quickly. I hate it, uh, but it's necessary. <laughs> and uh, it's a difference I learned, you know, I was researching Ayn Rand and why people associate her with fascism and American uh, thing. Because mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't really understand. I don't think that she was herself. Uh, but she has this great quote, which is that she doesn't want to be known as a philosopher. She wants she wants people to understand she's a rhetorician. 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 Essentially that she makes verbal arguments that can make sense, but she doesn't want people to understand it as logic. And logic's developed uh, as this rational idea of philosophy developed in the, what is it? I don't know, 1700s, 1600s, 1700s, because they needed to code the way they talk to each other, these few philosophers. And the only mm -hmm. way to do that is to apply what was then the most important principle, which is math. And when we use math and we say like, if A and B then C, then you and I can say, well, I don't agree with premise B, so we take B out, et cetera, et cetera. It's one of the reasons why modern philosophical discussion is so difficult to comprehend because it's become overly developed. Well, not only that, I think what gets, I took one philosophy slash logic course in university and I was like, eh, that's enough for me. It's math. Well, it is math. It's math with words, basically. But also, what I found was like, instead of actually having a discussion or an argument about something, you ended up just having an argument about how people phrased their sentences yes. instead of yes. just having the discussion and the argument. It got so tedious. I'm like, oh my God, like, can we just <laughs> talk about something rather than how we're actually talking? Um, that's what I found frustrating. 
You know, you're revealing a lot of stuff here today, Dave. Like, you're, you're pro-Crystal Skull. You're a libertarian, <laughs> apparently. Like, there's so much stuff you're revealing on this, on this episode here today. You know, all philosophical uh, systems, uh, political systems, when you look at the ideal, you know, why, mm-hmm. why did libertarianism happen? If it comes from this, like, naive assumption that people actually genuinely do what's best for all of us, then mm-hmm. uh, I can see why people are attracted to it. The reality, though, as we'll learn in this film, too, because this woman who wrote it is fucking intelligent, not that we've seen it yet. The reality is people are not rational and they don't make decisions that are good for the betterment of society. Uh, They do things for their own pleasure. And uh, that is a poison. My my jaw has dropped. You can't see that on this audio podcast. But (laughs) (laughs) to move on to that is, do you have any background with this director or this film? Mm-hmm. No, I, I did. I, well, there's a good reason you have not heard of it, Dave. I mean, to be fair. <laughs> it didn't exist technically. I will yeah. say it happened to be on my uh, Criterion watch list only because I was scrolling through and I saw a ring and mm. it uses the font probably intentionally that Lord of the Rings uses. Oh, so I God. saw a ring, okay. a person walking and it said losing ground. And I was like, oh, what is this? Could this be like some corny documentary about uh, something to do? So I clicked on the synopsis. And right. uh, I was like, oh, first black uh, female director, and I bookmarked it. That's the limit I've uh, yeah. never reached with it. I so. think I first heard about this movie maybe a year ago. It, it, it's very recently because it was kind of announced as coming to the Criterion Collection. Oh, part of the stories of New York. And I just happened to notice that it was from 1982, apparently. I'm like, how have I never heard of this movie before? So I did some quick, I remember, I remember at the time doing some quick research at the time, but kind of like you, like the, the basic gist of it, a lost film that was, was released in 1982 to festivals, but then did not get any type of wide release. Uh, and then her daughter brought it out years later, but is considered like the first, what is it? The first full length feature film directed by an African American woman. Although apparently there's some pushback to that sort of anyways, the year before, but yeah, there's one a year before, and yeah. that's only technically if you don't count some a uh, couple of films from the 1920s as not feature length. That's right. But I mean, we're talking with semantics here now, so like, I mean, this director, one uh, of the first, we can say. Yeah, I say have an entire podcast episode about semantics. I, I guess we'll talk about it quickly, but uh, Kathleen Collins mm-hmm. actually directed a so-called uh, narrative, but it was considered short film like three years mm-hmm. prior or two years. Uh, yeah. I, that's so, also anyways. on Criterion. I watched it, actually. Oh, did so. you? Oh, I <laughs> had that go. I really liked it, actually. Right, to be honest with you, I, I don't want to ruin what my thoughts are on this movie, but I might have liked it better than this movie we're going to be talking about <laughs> here today. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Let's talk about this movie. Yeah, let's talk about this movie. But before we do, of course, we should probably go for a break, uh, go thank some sponsors, and then when Ugh, we come back, sponsors. we'll be talking. I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know our loving and adoring audience, but it's something that we must do in order to get... The, I don't know, the amount of money that you would spend on an okay meal. There's a hand coming <laughs> each down. Ep- each episode. There's a hand coming down with some food, but I feel like biting it. Well, let's go, let's go and do that then. You feel like you've lost ground since we've come back? Uh, yes. Wait, what are we doing? I did lose ground. I, do you oh. feel anywhere in your life, in your personal life, Dave, that you've lost ground on something? Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm losing uh, the ground. I mean, of course, you can only still see your family through projections because somehow with the machine and the internet and 
all this type of stuff. We're still able to talk with people in 2022. We're just not in 2022. So mm, mm, right. it feels like Time you might work. be still detached from your family. Yeah. Because uh, the, the deep and rich fiction. Yes. Holograms mm. and uh, stuff like that. Projections. What are we talking about? I was trying to basically try and lead you up to saying like, I feel like I've lost ground in my own, my own self. Now that oh, I have okay. like a family, I have, I've lost my true sense of purpose. I'm just a dad and a husband. I'm not David Yun anymore. That's basically right. what I was trying to get you to say. But yeah, yeah, just deep fake it. That sounds very, very something like I would say out loud. Good. That is verbatim what you say. <laughs> no, just... All right. Uh, Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta based businesses and organizations. You know, this week, Dave, this is my favorite thing to do every week is to talk about banks because banks mm. make the world run. Well, I, I think you would agree. You would prefer to barter? Nobody barters anymore. Why else am I carrying this pig, Dave? <laughs> well, this is what ATB is doing here for us this week. They have this thing called ATB Cares. This is where you can donate to your favorite charities through ATB Cares. ATB Cares is a platform. It's like, like a, a Mario Davis? Brothers game. It's right. a platform that allows you to donate and have your donation matched by ATB to further your impact. So here's what you can do. For every dollar... That you donate to an Alberta non-religious charity. Kathleen Collins would probably support that. A non-religious <laughs> charity to a limit of $360,000. Oh my God, it's okay. a large number. Okay. What, you don't give that away each and every year, Dave? Definitely not aimed at the masses. Okay, yeah. ATB will match up to 20% of that amount. Holy shit. We should start a charity. How do you how do you apply for charity fund uh, status? You make a... Make a document or something like that. Why well, mm. we want to open up the Colin Dave Memorial Fund? Well, if we're gonna get <laughs> how much thousands of dollars? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, individual donations qualify for a maximum donation match of five hundred dollars, and donors can automatically receive electronic tax receipts. Electronic tax receipts. E receipts, baby. The future. Anyways, you can visit atbcares.com if you want to learn more about that. I'll flip in this aside. Good. Good for them. Support charities. ATB gave me a loan to open up my company, so I shouldn't be too harsh on them. I know. Also, if you're listening to this and you can afford several hundred thousand dollars in donations, break us a piece of that bread. Sign for our Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> Help us out. <laughs> These movies don't rent themselves. Speaking of uh, sponsorship, we are part of this grand host of Albertan-led content of uh, podcasters called the Alberta Podcast Network. And uh, I thought, Kyle, not that we were uh, led to say something like this, but I thought it'd be nice to talk about one of our uh, brethren. Do we still say brethren or is that, is that sort of become out of favor? What's, what's, a, what's a more inclusive word right, right. than that? Our peeps. Our, one of our, our peeps. Our peeps. That, that is correct. <laughs> that is the formal way now to say a group of people is to say, hey, peeps. All right. Uh, that sounds so stupid. If I if I came up to a group of people that you were a part of, and I, without irony, was like, "Hey, peeps," you would rightly laugh me out of no. the building. Oh my god, Kyle! I mean, this is this is. Uh, I mean, it's aged, but this is the thing. People people will say that. Where are my peeps at? Let's talk about one I've never heard of before because I've been a little delinquent in my keeping up of with all of our new affiliates. They are called. 3K3 Kitchens, 
And I think they talk about I food. I think it's, I think, Dave, to be honest with you, I think it's just three kitchens. Uh, I think that's what the podcast is called. All right. Well, you know what? I don't know anything about them. Let's let them tell us what <laughs> they're about. 3K Kitchen is a very different podcast. <laughs> and <it's... laughs> uh, we shouldn't laugh because we don't know. So let's let them, let's let them educate us because I, I don't know. Right. In a world where boring dinners and ungrateful children make cooking almost unbearable. Whoa, that's a little too dramatic. Let's try this again. I'm Heather Dyer. I'm Erin Wager. And I'm Sarah Somasundaram. This is Three Kitchens, a podcast about home cooking. Whether you like cooking or you just like eating, join us to talk about food. We'll have new episodes of Three Kitchens every Tuesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Three Kitchens. They'll tickle your funny bone, wet your appetite, and warm your heart. Did that guy think he was Bruce Wayne? (laughs) I kind of liked it, actually. He made us sound super badass. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dave. Well, we have now watched this film, this somewhat lost film from 1982. It's a very interesting movie to start off our season, I should say. For 1982, talking about a film that technically up until 2015 didn't really exist (laughs) to to the broader public. Um, Not to step on your toes here too much. I think that this is going to be one of those films that opens up a really great discussion because I have a lot to talk about, Ooh. I think. But I want to know what your immediate thoughts were on the movie itself of Losing Ground. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. You can tell that it's super low budget and it's written by an intellectual and not really developed for a broad audience the way we argue about how movies are developed in the modern times. But it's very thought-provoking. I thought the performances are fascinating. Very, you know, theatrical and stage acting. You know, not it's not a... Well, we would consider movie acting these days. I, I quite enjoyed it. It's uh, it was an interesting experience, and I, as especially as somebody who both quote unquote studied and ran away from philosophy, it was uh, it's exciting mm-hmm. to kind of live in that world of people who are clearly smarter than I am. Uh, so I kept I like imagining it. you having those conversations. Oh yeah, in a in a university <laughs> context, and was like. Yeah, this this is about right. This is... The problem was I was <laughs> drunk. To argue so. about things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my problem was I was too drunk, so I uh, I it didn't it didn't end well for me. One thing, this is just my own personal feeling. One thing that I want to try and instill a little bit more into our discussions is trying to separate formally what the movie is doing, and then like mm-hmm. content wise what mm-hmm. the movie is doing, because formally. Like how the movie, how the movie looks, how the camera is used, how it's blocked. All that stuff for me was really great in this movie. For sure. You can tell that this is like a first film or like a, a, a beginning of a career. Because I listen to like the biggest movie podcast on the planet, Blank Check. They are currently going through the films of Jane Campion. The Piano is probably the biggest one people will know from her. Uh, and The Power of the Dog that just came out here last year. It was interesting to me to, to kind of see her early work very close to seeing this movie because i thought there was a lot of similarities as far as like how it's uh, it's constructed they're learning the craft so that in a few years from now they're gonna like really hit it out of the park like everything is just gonna synthesize itself and we're gonna push into the next next level that's all i feel so i feel really robbed in a way that kathleen collins passed away so young and we never really got to that next level because my conflict inside myself is that that is formally what's going on. And then if I talk about just the content of this movie, I really did not enjoy it. <laughs> I did not enjoy my time really watching it. And I think some of it is due 
to the performances, which I, I know you said are more theatrical, I think that they're more stilted is, is the word that I would use for them. Specifically, the two main characters of the wife professor and then her husband. It just they never felt real. And this is what, what's interesting, contrasting it with her short film. There, there's still a little bit of that stiltedness, but it feels more natural in that movie. And here I can tell it's them rehearsing lines almost that they have to give. I never felt like these were actual characters. I will give it the benefit of the doubt that by the the last 20 minutes or so, I was kind of super invested <laughs> in seeing like where this was going. But uh, it was kind of a rough struggle for me. So this is interesting that... Uh, we're starting off 1982 right, Dave. We've uh, flipped our positions <laughs> where you're the apologist and I'm the one who's going to be like negative Nancy. I go with contrarian Kyle. That being said, this movie brings up so much stuff to talk about. I love what the conversations are in this movie. A link that is going to be provided into the show notes that I really encourage people to watch. I will admit that I've only watched half of it, but there is a two hour lecture that Kathleen Collins gives to this group of students about filmmaking, about her ideas, what she's working with, how to create scripts, all that kind of stuff. That is like, I would say almost like required, not background, but like as a combination piece to this movie. Because I think there's a lot that you can grab from there. I know you watched a little bit of that too, Dave, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, the first thought I had when I turned that video on is I wish that I had had her as a philosophy professor. She is so impassioned. It is interesting. I mean, you brought up this comparison with Jane Campion. I don't know anything about Jane Campion, but I'm going to assume she's not black. And I think that no. when I watch this film and I watch that lecture, Kathleen Collins dying at the age of 48 is a huge loss for our, uh, for American culture. 46, actually. 46, sorry. Um, but she's also too smart and too active to have ever got a main stage, honestly. Yeah. I, I don't I don't believe in America, as you know, and there's no way, <laughs> there's no way this like, woman- you just, you, It's like birds, right? It's not real. Birds aren't real. There's no way this woman would have got center stage uh, until at mm. least the late 90s if she had been able to live that long or the mid 2000s with the progressive mindset that she has. That uh, I got through the point where she was discussing, which is something I was feeling in this film, uh, not so much the uh, specific philosophical idea of the otherness and the repression of, in this case, and she's so good at not necessarily making this just about African-Americans, just even the, the general colonial lens, but how it's become this dialogue where if you're not right, you're wrong. You know, that you're either, mm -hmm. uh, right, the, the angel or the devil. And then once you're the devil, then you feel guilty because you can't be perfect. This sort of psychology is in this film. And it's a discussion that needs to be had more often. How do we even see ourselves? She does bring up existentialism. She's pretty young. I mean, she's studying in the 60s and 70s and lecturing in the 70s and 80s. So a lot of this uh, post-existentialist, uh, very complex contemporary philosophy is being developed at the time. The main premise coming out of that war and the existential idea is that we saw human beings do fucking terrible things and then they came back mm -hmm. and tried to be good. How do you put that into rational philosophical terms where everything's systemized and you're supposed to either be a good person or a bad person? It's just fundamentally not true. So well, it's to, amazing. To put it a amazing step lecture. further and, I, and she really goes into this more inside of the lecture than the uh, film. In, yeah. Inside of her lecture about how Christianity how that's been the role of Christianity in the Western culture yep. <laughs> for 
centuries now at this point. Just as a little side tangent, if people have not seen this movie before, before we get too far into this, just the very basic premise of this is that we have this very smart professor talking about philosophy or teaching about philosophy. She's married to this artist husband who does paintings. He decides that he wants to move further away and he wants to get back into nature and, and be able to paint his landscapes and, 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 and that sort of thing. So she does, even though that's a hardship for her. And then he, of course, like cheats on her and philanders with her while she was to, to spend time, decides to go to this student who is making a short film or maybe a feature length student film and become a uh, an actress in this to basically uh, expand on all these feelings of turmoil inside of herself i mean that's basic premise stuff there's other stuff of course in there but well you brought up the performances and i agree with you i mean Mm -hmm. uh, it's awkward but you know the problem with the plot is that what this is i think is a metaphor for this lecture i mean the main character yeah represents rationalist almost stoic ideologies where she's like intelligence and academia over everything you know and the artist is the polar opposite where it's like you know, ecstasy, feeling, emotion, and rationalism is bullshit. And they're married, which is a fascinating dynamic. Uh, so it's not really about right. him cheating on her. It's about how that can't coexist. And they're constantly at odds with each other. Yeah, they're, they're different philosophies of life are yeah. literally at odds with one another. And they're trying to mix too. They're both uh, reaching yeah. out for each other. It's, it's fascinating. She's obviously like attracted to that in in a way right like she's sure. so rational sure. like she feels like she's like so logical so rational and is attracted to this artist self-expression that she herself cannot succumb to and yet well in the film i think she is able to do that when it's like oh you're just being a character this is not actually you you can be a character and i think she's able to succumb to that a little bit more and be able to work through her feelings that um She's trying to intellectualize away, which is also wrapped up and it's she's very clear. Kathleen Collins is very clear with her intention with this, which is this is a movie that is not interested in being like these characters, these black characters specifically are all good or they're all bad. Right. They're just people, they're characters. And I think that was the more interesting thing. A lot of the conversations we had around like the black exploitation films and some other stuff from 1971 is like, is all representation good or is it, do you have to have more than that? And that's something that I struggled with, with gay representation in 1971. It's like, oh, I don't know if we really need this type of representation in these films uh, versus for instance, like, on the same hand, well, there's black creators and actors and set designers and cinematographers getting work, which is a good thing. But you also, on the flip side, have to have these characters also be like drug dealers and pimps and all these other things that aren't great. And her point of view was because of Christianity, to throw religion under the bus here, because of Christianity and, and the way that sin is looked at, right? Is you're like, you are either in sin or out of sin. It's that duology. So in that case, if you're in that and it's like, well, I have... I've let Jesus into my heart. I've let God into my life. So therefore, I have been saved and everyone else is a sinner. I can offload that to whatever group I want that to be. And when you bring those lesser, quote unquote, lesser people into the film, uh, into film, especially from people that are not in that community, you either have these two overcorrections where it's like, okay, this black character has to be evil like again, drug pusher, criminal person, or they are this like beautiful saint who does nothing bad, who never says a bad word about anything, is like this holy good person. And as she says, like both of those are false. <laughs> those are not real things. Um, and I found that the most interesting part of her conversation. Perhaps 
But have I introduced you to Robot Jesus? Well, we talked, uh, is it last week, about Sidney Poitier? And I think that's yeah. the thing that makes me feel uh, disconnected from him. It's not that I don't respect his body of work. It's, ju it's just interesting in this light to look at his body of work. He is a civil rights icon for a good reason. He pushes boundaries. Uh, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about Dwayne Jones, same Dwayne thing. Jones. You must know him. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, these are all contemporaries to each other and they're all pushing against uh, this problem but they do it in their own way. And her sort of insight into formalizing that in relation to this puritanical, I mean, it's not even, the irony about Christianity is when you read some of the texts in Christianity itself, it is trying to push back against this very dichotomy, like this very problem. Mm. You know, we could get someone smart to talk about Abrahamic religions in general, but Christianity in particular at in its text, is kind of like, hey, Let's just forgive everybody. Let's chill. We don't need to be upset all the time. It's really Catholicism that fucked it all up. All the branches, <laughs> no, all the branches that came out of that started having this uh, polarizing effect. When they hated Catholicism, they switched too far the other way and they're all overcorrecting each other to the point where, yeah, her insight, you're either the saint or the sinner, that pervades even movie writing. I mean, how many movies have we watched where that, that has to be required in order for us to even enjoy a film? You know, any movie where we stride that middle line, people get very uncomfortable. It is fascinating. This is, this movie's got so much in it and it's acted by people who clearly understand the concept, whether they can emote it to a way that, for example, you enjoyed as a sitting experience. That lecture, yeah, definitely is required. I'm not a big supplemental feature guy, as you know, we discussed yeah. that with streams, yeah. but fuck man, like whether you like this movie or not, that lecture should be required viewing for anybody who wants to write film. <laughs> Oh, I agree. I think it gives some really good insight into it. There's actually this specific moment, I'm just going to call it out, where she just asked for someone, one of the students, like, tell me what the script you're writing. Okay, who's the main character? But then she asked the question, and I think a really key question is like, what do you like about this character? And of course, the student goes like, well, he stands for this and he stands for this. Like, no, 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 that's not what I asked. That's what he stands for. That's the symbolism he has maybe in this movie, which, of course, it's if important. you're writing creatively, sure. there's going to be some sort of symbolism. But what do you like about the character? What does the character do that you like? And the student has a hard time <laughs> because there's a woman that's very intense, like standing in front of him. But what she really digs into is like as a writer, as a creative, you need to understand why the characters are doing what they're doing. They cannot just remain the symbolism of the thing you're trying to communicate or else people will pick up on the fact that these are not actual characters. Mm -hmm. They're not real people. Mm -hmm. Do they like to get up early? Do they enjoy studying with a bunch of <laughs> drinks in front of them? Do they do this? Do they do that? Like, what do they do for fun? Like, knowing that. Whether that ever shows up in the script doesn't really matter. It's like, you need to understand what makes them tick so that you can write them effectively. And I think that is on display in this movie. I have to be clear. I think that is on display. There's just a part of me that wishes like, oh, if only they could have had like, quote unquote, like great actors in the, in the two lead roles. I think I probably would have enjoyed this film experience a little bit more maybe splitting hairs a little bit i still enjoy the message it's just i the the, the execution of it is a little bit uh, frustrating for me um i can't disagree with that on the surface level i think you're right i mean there's a reason why this is not like it's an indie film darling right it won a film festival yeah. acclaim but it could never i mean as much as i want to use the broad brush and say it didn't find distribution because of racism. I mean, that's going to play a role and uh, sexism because she's a female director. We saw that with mm -hmm. Elaine May 
who also is probably too smart for her own good and tried to build narratives that would essentially offend a casual viewer. And that's what this movie is. Uh, If you don't have any leanings to wanting to read into these, you know, the first appearance of Dwayne Jones, he's like an apparition wearing a fucking top hat and and speaking sort of (laughs) like almost Shakespearean English. And you're just like, what the fuck? Where did this guy come from? It's like a dream sequence. Who is this guy? Yeah. So if you're out to see, I mean, I love Spielberg, but if you're out to see a Spielberg type of film, uh, this is not palatable. Uh, It's going to be shocking. Exactly. This is coming out the same year E.T. comes out. Like these could not be more functionally different films from one another. Um, Not that you can't enjoy both, but it's like it is, you're not going to be going like, oh, let's go watch E.T. for the third time and be like, oh, we'll check out Losing Ground at the same time. So I, I don't think that the actors are bad. I think they've been given direction to act out these metaphors of philosophical systems or like intellectual discourse because there are moments like you know when both of them are have to be emotional or have to struggle in certain portions of their relationship or as this movie builds to its uh, final scene uh, where there i think this is what you felt at the end of the movie that actually becomes quite convincing it's just very awkward at the beginning it's so intentional and if you're not speaking the language yet if you're not if you don't know anything about it, which I didn't, that this is a, a philosophy professor and uh, a civil mm-hmm. rights activist that's uh, building this film, it is kind of weird. You're just like, oh, it's a little B-movie-ish. Right. It's like, uh, they look so wooden. It's just so fascinating to me too, because I mean, this is always the danger of like playing like the what if game. Mm-hmm. Because you passed away so early, like we are leading up here to a time in the mid to late 80s, where you're getting like, you know, Spike Jones and John Singleton and the Hughes Spike brothers Lee, that Spike are making. Lee, Spike Lee. Did I say Spike you Jones? Did. Yeah. Okay. You have Spike Lee, you have uh, John Singleton, you have the Hughes brothers who are making these films starring black actors, talking about uh, issues within the black community. And I think she would have been a really interesting voice. Oh, in yeah. That, right. Absolutely. The, the question I, I asked, just to throw my own like, internal racism and not knowing that that's what it was for so long i tried to think back like how many really like, truly how many like smart well-educated black characters was i exposed to mm. in films i honestly can't think of any when i was growing up they were either the bad guys or something else mm. lawrence fishburne boys in the hood yeah but uh, see i was a white kid in rural alberta so i didn't watch boys mm. in the hood. Right, right, right. <laughs> that was not a movie i watched and uh, honestly and i know he's kind of looked down as being cheesy but it really is fresh prince of bel-air i think it's really the first time i saw like a black family and maybe the cosby show to an extent as well interesting with bill cosby in his real life versus his persona on that tv show he really is like the saint in that show yes. like he does not really do anything bad no. at least on the fresh prince there's a little bit of <laughs> moral grayness uh, occasionally we, I, we had the stand-up circuit and richard Pryor and eddie murphy blowing up in right. that era you know i think Comedy and especially stand up leans interestingly more towards this intellectual discourse, even though we, you know, yeah. have to digest it in kind of raw, raw, raw jokes. Um, mm-hmm. But they're always poking at social context because uh, they're all intelligent, if emotionally damaged people <laughs> who end up on stage performing. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Although, you know, my worry again uh, in this revisionist uh, discussion is it's hard to be intelligent black and a woman it's really the three threats yeah. to hollywood yeah. in, in many ways like one of those you could probably get away with all three of them i don't know yeah. i don't know but i would love the idea that this woman and women like her would have found a, a better voice earlier we are getting much better representation and, and clearer dialogue well maybe not clearer but 
open dialogue now. Well, I think that's the wild thing about this. Talk about a trailblazer. Sure, like we can say 1982, one of the first women who is uh, who is black, who is making films. I, and I'm, again, I'm sure there's other people in, in even in different countries, but it really hasn't been until like the last few years that I've really noticed like black women actually getting behind the camera with it being like um, Regina King, Rebecca Hall. They're starting to become creators themselves. It's taken almost 40 years <laughs> for that to happen. Yeah. I think that we progress is slow and it's mm -hmm. not for a lack of intellectual or active folks. Uh, it's not like the civil rights movement just began in the 50s. There are incredible sure. writers and thinkers uh, that precede that, you know, for centuries. And we see that across cultures. It's just, it just sucks when you see something like this, whether the film itself, is, you know, is commercially viable. And then you learn about a writer of this nature and you find out that she dies of breast cancer in her mid forties. And then mm -hmm. we have to play this what if game. And it, you know, who knows if she had lived, maybe nothing would have happened. You know, that we see people like that too. I, I have no idea. This is definitely a movie that pokes all of these questions. So it's good. Right? Whether mm. it could have sold tickets, probably not. <laughs> but I'm glad to have watched it. Uh, and I think people, if you uh, pay for Criterion, uh, you need to watch this too. Oh, yeah. If you're listening Definitely to this podcast, you it. absolutely need to watch this movie. <laughs> Instead of the what if game, let's play Guess Who. We should probably move on to our next segment here. We'll come back and talk about some of these other topics, but we should do some background information. So, Losing Ground, kind of unclear on exactly the very first time someone would have been able to see this in a theater because it did do a festival run. Its highest prize is it won a first prize at this festival in Portugal, but then was not released. It just was not released into theaters after that. It is rated currently 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. On IMDb, it has a 6.7. There is no available rating on Metacritic. And over on Rotten Tomatoes, Barely anyone has watched this, but 17 critics have given it 100% and 50, that is five zero users. And again, if you're tuning in for the first time, usually this is in the thousands. That's why I said like barely anyone has watched this. Yeah, as a minimum. 50 users have it at 31%. Wow. So. <laughs> That's a big disparity. It's available mm -hmm. on DVD or Blu-ray. It is on the Criterion, at least for this month, although it has been there for the last few months. So hopefully it's not going away anytime soon. But that is currently the only way to stream it. It is not available on iTunes or YouTube or anywhere else to either buy or rent this movie. I found out that its budget was $125,000. So you can, I can understand that. Yep. Its plot description is Sarah, a cold college professor and her husband, an ecstatic painter. Yeah, an ecstatic painter spend a summer away from the city straining their rocky relationship. Dave, last week we started this new little game because this is the part of the show where I become basically Jigsaw oh and Dave has to play a game. Oh my God. You fucking biffed it last week. You totally <laughs> you failed. You created three taglines that were exactly the same. So I don't know if it was the writing perhaps, <laughs> but... There's always a tagline to a I'm film that usually shows up one. on the poster. Okay. And uh, usually try to describe the film. And so one of these is the actual tagline to this movie. All right. And the other two are from my complete mind's eye. I've completely made them up. Is it, it doesn't take logic. Is it, it doesn't take passion. Or is it, it doesn't have a tagline. It doesn't have a tagline. Is it your final? That's what you're yeah, guessing? Yeah, I'm going to go with C. All right. Well, you're at 50% now. So that's good for you. Good, good <laughs> for David Young. You can tagline? put one little check mark up on the, on the scoreboard. <laughs> 
If you were going to make one up, you should have made one that was incredibly inane, kind of like the description. Mm-hmm. A couple breaks apart in the light of some, you know, some bullshit. Breaks like apart that. and find themselves within their own. That might have given me a pause because what they want to do. S- yeah. So many stupid people that write taglines. No offense. Oh boy, I have looked forward in time to see some of the movies we're talking about, and you're not wrong. <laughs> some of them are very bad. This stars uh, Sorette Scott as Sarah, Bill Gunn as Victor, Dwayne Jones as Duke, and Maritza Rivera as Celia. The only person I am familiar with, because I don't think any of these people kind of went on to do much of anything, well, theater is acting. Dwayne Jones. I love theater. Yeah, that's correct. A lot of theater acting. Dwayne Jones, I know the best because he has his own, like, first which is he was the first black man to be the lead of a horror film from The Night of the Living Dead back in 68. So that was George Romero's first zombie film that he made, which is also on the Criterion channel and which is also great. It's a great movie. Quick note on Dwayne Jones. I mean, he also tragically died very young, but... Died young. He was like... Like a few years after this movie, right? I mean, him and Bill Gall of these people are of this very intellectual academic group that are growing up together. But he was mm-hmm. like an English scholar and... This, Went on the Peace Corps and got degrees in Niger. And he's he's got a fascinating life. He's not, you know, a lot of times we we have this idea that actors just act. But this cast, all of them studied and, you know, and, and were involved in these uh, activist movements. Mm-hmm. And they're fascinating people. Uh, there's not a lot to read about them. Uh, likely as much right. because they're, you know, black activists as much as they died so early. Uh, 51 years old uh, sucks. But it is, he's a fascinating guy. Uh, Bill Gunn's same thing. He he died at 54, which is scary. That yeah. sucks. So, like, three of the people involved in this movie, like, died super early. But Bill Gunn has an Emmy, which I think is interesting. And uh, also studied for writing uh, for a show called Jonas in 1972. No. I don't, no don't ask me. He was a theater actor and he... Hung out with like Eartha Kitt, Montgomery Cliff, and of course, Marlon Brando. Why not? Marlon Brando is just betting everywhere. I love Eartha Kitt's voice. Yes. She could talk to me all day long. <laughs> I think she's so great. Bill Gunn was actually a writer more than an actor. And he's got mm. an award for a f- horror film called Ganja and Hess, which I've never heard of. Yes. The interesting thing about that is it was scored by his roommate, Sam Wayman, who is Nina Simone's brother. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of neat, right? That's some neat web of uh, yeah. interconnectedness. Um, yeah. Sarah Scott's a Broadway actress. Nina Simone also has a very interesting singing voice. Yes. She's great. And she's, uh, she's a fascinating person too. And Billy Allen, who played the mother, uh, she's got a, she's a storied career. Also first, she's like first black woman to have a recurring role on television. First black woman to star in a commercial on American television. First black woman, like she's, she's a trailblazer in her own right. Mm. And she's fantastic in this film. I mean, if there's any actress in this film that clearly had a career on stage, it was the mom. <laughs> She's yeah, great. Yeah, it, no, right? I agree with that. I, I I love those conversations though. Those are actually some of my favorite parts of the movie because in the movie the mother is an actress yes, as well. That's right. And she's always telling her like, I don't need to play Macbeth or anything like that. I just want to play a woman who's loose with her morals or something like that. <laughs> yeah, she's. <laughs> I thought was great. She's great. You know, I, I, in reflection, she's such a great middle line between the two warring philosophies of right. the of the couple. Right. She's. Both intellectual, but also free-spirited. It's great. She's kind of like what you wish she could be. This also, again, goes back to that lecture that Kathleen Collins was giving, which is like, it's okay to have symbolism in your Mm -hmm. movies, because each of these characters does represent something, but they also all feel like, yeah, 
Like, I understand your motivations and who you are and what you're about. I was reading this other book and they were talking about, uh, you know, we kind of brought this up a lot. You know, what makes some films historically classic and others just fall by the wayside? And I suspect this idea of being able to have a character that connects with the audience in a very fundamental, emotional and human way, like outside of rationality. And really paring that down into that question she asked this uh, in this lecture group, you know, asking writers uh, whether the character is likable in a very broad sense. You know, do you identify with a character on screen as a human being? And that's very difficult to manufacture, but um, I, that might be what separates these great writers from the ones that make uh, popcorn flicks, which is uh, even pop mm. popcorn flicks have this. You know, when I watch Die Hard. I like Bruce Willis's character, even though I've never met anyone who's a New York, you know, gritty New York cop who can walk on glass and bare feet. There's something about the way right. he suffers. It's not like he's the first anti-hero either. That right, anytime right. he has a reaction, I'll have this moment like, yeah, I think I would do the same thing. Not like kill a bunch of terrorists, but I'd be miserable. I'd be so disappointed in how people. I, I would pull. I would pu push Alan Rickman out the window, <laughs> though. That is something I would do. Um, it's it's just interesting, and I know you'll talk a little bit about Kathleen Collins, but my God, she was always an intellectual, fascinating woman. Yeah, like I, that's what I really want to go. I, I this is why I wish there was more of her work available. I, I actually, I'm very curious what she thought. Of black exploitation films, mm. because I could see on one hand, like the kind of what I just said uh, moments ago, which is great that people are getting jobs, but I, th those kind of go against what I think she was trying to strive mm -hmm. for, and whether she would have been a champion of the the new voices in the late '80s, early '90s, and what and what they were trying to create and make and and do and stuff like that. So in that in that uh, lecture, I got an hour in, and she has not a lot of good things to say about television. Yeah, <laughs> she thought television was the worst. We talked a little bit in Tokyo Story about interpreting art or films with the context of living through it. And uh, someone mm -hmm. like Kathleen Collins, it would be interesting if she commented on, yeah, what we call the auteurs of the late 80s in black cinema and uh, whether they she felt they were actually playing into this uh, negative archetype. And it's hard to tell, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this uh, Spike Lee's uh, depiction of New York help sort of liberate these roles or does it play into it to, uh, you know, also have good social dialogue? I have no idea. We're not black. We don't understand the experience of African-Americans. So you, you should uh, ring up Mike and see what his opinions on Kathleen yeah. Collins are. I'm sure him and Dick Gregory have a lot of opinions about her. Oh, I'm sure. Her life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's a fascinating person. About that. So cinematography is by Ronald K. Gray, written by Kathleen Collins, directed by Kathleen Collins. Kathleen was born in 1942 and even at an early age, excelled at performance and writing. And eventually she goes off to college where she gets a BA in philosophy and religion. Um, but at the same time, as you might expect from someone who was born in 1942, the civil rights movement is kind of in full swing as she is in college. So she joins a group called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to go and get black residents of Georgia registered to vote. Uh, and for that, she was arrested twice, which I think is very interesting to talk in a current context as the United States rolls back voting rights for its population. Put in your own comment here, I suppose. Go America. So after that, she goes to Paris, gets a master's in French literature and cinema. Because why Man. not? And so we now find ourselves in the year 1966, and she wants badly to break into film as a film director. Admittedly, I'm glossing over a lot, but is essentially 
laughed at and said like no one of those things maybe both of them absolutely not it's not going to happen we have to remember again as we talked about in our black exploitation episodes from 1971 season even people like um gordon parks and um and melvin van peebles people who are also within the civil rights movement and stuff like that kind of had to either fight or self-fund their own stuff to even get it into theaters. So a woman in that type of thing, a woman in that type of environment, when I think we talked about that in the Elaine May, uh, a new belief episode, when we talked about Elaine May, like she was one of two women who were in the director's guild. One of two. <laughs> there was only two and of them. She was hugely popular at the time, right? I mean, yeah, people would have backed her a little bit because she was one of the most famous comedians of the era. And uh, she still couldn't make it. So Yeah, and as Kathleen Collins as an outsider, just was just not in the cards. So she goes into academia. So while Hollywood is evolving incredibly slowly and allowing people of color to be behind the camera, like I said, she goes to become a teacher at City University of New York. Uh, she was a professor of film history and screenwriting. Uh, but she was in her spare time writing screenplays, and a faculty member saw this, specifically Ronald K. Gray, who is the cinematographer of this movie, and believed that she had something important to say. They self-fund her first foray into film in the short called The Cruise Brothers and Mrs. Malloy, which we said is on the Criterion channel. It is about these three Puerto Rican brothers who are asked by this very old white woman to come and restore her house for her because she thinks she's going to die soon. So she wants to have it all fancy so she can have one last grand ball and dance party. Meanwhile, the camera... Right, it's normal, like a normal camera thing in a movie, but occasionally we'll start to like do this like kind of like floating maneuver, and it's the ghost of their dead dad talking with them. It's kind of a really weird, oddball film. But I really liked it. <laughs> I don't know what it was. It was like just like the right uh, combination of like magical realism and like comedy and, and and stuff like that. So I actually quite enjoyed that movie, and I recommend people go and watch it if they have the Criterion Channel. That's followed up by this movie, uh, as we said, same cinematographer collaboration. And it got a good, re uh, good reception on the festival circuit, but when it came time to sell it to distributors, as Dave kind of sort of alluded to here, and according to Kathleen Collins, really nobody wanted it. The quote apparently was, people would come up to not her, but the team that was trying to sell this and to say, uh, we don't know any black people like this. Mm -hmm. So they just didn't black think it was going to be able to be sold. A bunch of white people mm -hmm. were basically saying it wasn't black enough so <laughs> fucked up so it was shelved and then tragically kathleen collins would pass away in 1988 due to breast cancer only 46 at the time it would be her daughter who'd be instrumental in the resurrection of her career because much of her stuff was still unpublished um and her film of course unseen so it wasn't until 2006 that is when her daughter nina collins felt like she was ready to start to sift through all of her mother's stuff and after going through that, in 2015, a collection of her short stories was published. This movie was also reissued in 2015. This is really when film critics were instrumental in championing its place in the canon and also reevaluating Kathleen Collins' career and her influence on other filmmakers. That inspired Criterion to like accept it into its collection. And in 2019, another collection of short stories, diary entries, scripts, and screenplays was published in this book called Notes from a Black Woman's Diary. And then lastly, as recently as 2021, her plays were being performed in New York City. So there's new uh, productions and, and mountings of her, of her work even now. That's Kathleen Collins in this movie, basically. Yeah. It only took 40 years. I mean, they, what is the note? That this is semi-autobiographical, this film? You can kind of tell after you see her speak. It's like, okay, yeah, I can see <laughs> this is you in this movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, to the point, the Metacritic viewers 
that log in. Uh, this movie is not a movie, right? It's not like something <laughs> you would sit down with popcorn and watch. And I think I got hooked as soon as she, the main character reveals she's a professor of philosophy. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to watch this stupid thing. Because, <laughs> like, you know, I, I want to sometimes have that uh, uh, discussion. But, uh, you know, as a film, it's, it's definitely sort of a low budget, low rent um, yeah. right? art film. If anything. Yeah, you can definitely tell it's low budget. But even my rating is going to make it sound like I hate this probably more than what I really... It's just that, yeah, I was I was constantly becoming disengaged with some of the performances inside of this. But, like, the actual... Dis her actual discussions around things, like, you know, when her husband talks about his inspirations, it's like, well, that's your intellectual mm -hmm. side talking. Like, what is it that, that's coming out inside of you? Like, there's always that struggle between, like, her rationality versus his, like, what moves him emotionally. Which, weirdly enough, I always find is what we come across because I get emotionally moved by films, and then you have to intellectually come in and like, meh, doesn't make sense wow. to me. I don't nah. like this movie. <laughs> That's just when you're offended. <laughs> you characterize it that way when when we disagree. <laughs> I think this was for me personally this the schism or the sort of uh, cliff edge that I couldn't cross uh, when I was trying to study this stuff. Uh, you know, aside from my mm -hmm. self-deprecating thing about being dumb, uh, I just couldn't enjoy just reading books for the sake of citing them in the next book I read. Mm. That is an unfair sort of characterization of the practice of philosophy in general. But um, I started feeling more like the the artist's husband than I did the professor of philosophy. You know, I want to feel things, Kyle, you know? Well, I think that's the interesting thing. I think they both kind of want to feel things. Well, that's... But I think you're, you're, I think you're right. Like their philosophies are just so incongruent with each other about what that actually means. I, I find, you know, if you actually look at our reviewing history, I actually think the opposite is true of what you just proclaimed. I mean, I think you spent a lot of time <laughs> trying to backstory and contextualize and, and understand what the writers are going for. And I, I spent a lot of time just wanting to experience a movie for the sake of watching the movie itself. And But like this film, we're also doing the opposite, right? Like you also mm -hmm. have a strong uh, visceral experience of films, right? Like you love horror movies, you love campiness, you love all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I also have uh, the rational side where as, as soon as someone says something really stupid, I'm, I'll just turn off. I'm like, no, this is, you know, completely irrational. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with this. So it is true that you give up on movies way quicker oh, yeah. than I do <laughs> in, in, in the aggregate, in the aggregate. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I just don't like being, uh, I don't like being dumb. I think there's a place for dumb movies, right? When I watch, sure. uh, I, I mean, I haven't, I don't know if they hold up, but when I was big into Will Ferrell movies or Andy Samberg movies, I am not looking to read into any kind of life lessons in any of those films. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I try to enjoy them uh, for how stupid they are. It doesn't mean that I like every Will Ferrell movie. There are some where I'll turn on. I, I turn off after 10 minutes because they're unwatchable, yeah. right? Um, same with intellectual films. Some try way too hard and I have to turn them off because it's so pretentious. Some are like that middle line. There's some movies where it'll make you yeah. provoke thought. This is kind of a reduction of this movie, but like, are you rooting for her? Like, what? Are, who are you with? Are you with anyone in this movie? I, I didn't think it was that kind of narrative. I think I was enjoying it right. at the end just because everybody was coming apart. And um, that tension that ratches up because, you know, one of the fascinating things at the end, and it's a little egotistical, I think, for Kathleen to put it this way, but the female lead doesn't technically, quote unquote, do anything wrong other than try to find a balancing line. Whereas... The emotional husband is having not just this affair, but it, it's implied that he's had affairs before. Sure, but but I think she's having 
at, at base level an, an emotional affair with the with Dwayne well, Jones. And that's the fun part, I suppose, in the end, as everybody kind of breaks apart from what they're even doing or what they believe in, which is a broader discussion rather than a narrative one. So, I, you know, I didn't mm-hmm. find myself going, oh, yeah, that guy got what he deserved. That, you know, it wasn't that type of film. Sure. Well, I, I think that you're we're watching kind of damaged people is maybe the wrong way to put it, but definitely people that are struggling, right? Someone who we're watching approaching people. middle age and it's like, right, it's like crumbling in on himself, trying to like feel again. And you have this woman who's like, can you just be normal for a second? Like, what is what is wrong with you? Um, so the other thing we can agree with, though, the movie within a movie, like the student film that she's a part of, looks like it's fucking terrible. <laughs> that I looks so bad. I love that too, how real that is, that that is a student film, right? Uh, oh, 100%. And it's just... I've seen those student films. <laughs> and I, I love how intelligent that is, that it itself is a sort of a, a distilled version, a, a broken version of the same movie, right? I mean, it, it is so corny that they're, he's making, the, the student is making the exact same film, but it, an even lower rent version and kind of even more abstract of this woman who's caught between uh, chasing a new affair with this effusive, right? What was he, a dancer? I can't even remember what that story was supposed to be about and getting uh, caught between... Uh, this affair and having to kill her husband, so to speak. It's fascinating. Right, right, right. I think when you brought up Melvin and Peebles, this is not to be compared with Sweetback in its, uh, you know, brutalistic imagery, but there's a lot of parallels uh, to the two. I think the well, scoring will reflect like the same. Basically like a first or one of the first films they're making. Tackling social the issues. The low rent, like yeah. the low budget of it, the tackling of social issues. I will say this, I do like this way more than I like oh, Sweetback. absolutely. It's interesting. I think Melvin and Peebles' experience of black life is much more violent. I don't know if it's because he's mm-hmm. male or because of, you know, they have such different sort of um, places that they grew up in. So the movie itself comes out so much more violent, sexually violent, physically violent. Even the philosophies and the intellectual discourse is violent. Everything is cruel in that film. And this one has that uh, opposite feeling. And maybe there's a, that really dangerous male-female thing, but this one has an emotional grounding where this lead, this woman, is really just trying to find out how to enjoy living her life because she doesn't look like she's enjoying it at the beginning of the film. And instead of finding right. it, uh, it's just tra- it's just trauma, <laughs> uh, which is frightening at the end. That shot of her dressed up for the film and just crying, holding the gun, it's fascinating. Yeah. Allowing yourself that kind of like, I don't know, act of retribution almost mm-hmm. <laughs> that she somehow can't do in her real life. There's a few of things I just want to quickly go off on my list that we haven't done. I think it's him that says it to her, but he's like, are you pretty or is it just the light? Oh, yeah, yeah. Which I often ask about you, Dave. <laughs> uh, you know, as a photographer, I, I caught this, I did a, a fashion, like streetwear. Remember I was doing that streetwear thing with Dallas uh, Magari. Mm-hmm. There's one of the baristas. I mean, she's great and, um, you know, she's pretty and she's sweet, but she came out one of the photo shoots. And when you take a picture of her, it's fascinating how, you know, she just appears different on on the camera than she does in real life. And we hear this a lot about sure. models. He, the way we experience other human beings and the world, you know, I, I have this light stand on a box. It looks fundamentally different here than it does on the shelf. It's weird. The contextual idea right. of beauty and importance and uh, and art yeah i love little things like how that. you hold your head can have a 
have a yeah, huge like impact. Posture and a portrait photography is key. It's how you get rid of your double chin, but people. There, there's that emasculation that seems to be happening with the the husband who has to like put down his wife to make himself mm-hmm. feel important. And that's what I call wooing. So there's all this like kind of subtextual stuff that's going on here to see this fractured marriage that's going on. I do like her rebuttal to him later on, which is like, "Don't take your dick out like it's somehow artistic." <laughs> like. <laughs> like I think, I think that's really funny. That's a great comment on contemporary art. Oh, sure. I mean, the the, the other big one, and this is somewhat referenced too in her that first short film she did, which makes me think like this is something that probably she would have gone even further with in later films if she was given the chance. They mentioned how like the, there's a black person from Puerto Rico. They're not Latin enough for this community and not black enough for this community. And they say it's like being, well, I'm sorry, I'm bringing this in. It's like being bisexual in that case, where it's like, you're not really part of this community. You're not really part of that community. So I think that tension is something that she was really interested with the way that we view ourselves are like our own sense of self versus how society looks at us versus what institutions look at us. I think she would probably look more and more into that because there's obviously something she was interested in. Well, that's the, I mean, we joke about Sartre, but that existential movement is wrestling with this problem of how I view myself, how society views me, how I view other people uh, because of this moral implication of whether an action I do is interpreted the way I intended, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't have the same experiences as other people, but as a Korean person born in Toronto and raised in Canada, there's a similar thing where when I'm here, like walking around Calgary, uh, I'm not white. I'm not six something. I didn't ride a pickup truck. I don't have the same experience. Okay. Okay. I feel like you're attacking when I me. Will go to, uh, <laughs> when I went to Korea, it was the exact same thing. People wouldn't talk to me. I didn't speak Korean. I mm. dress differently. I carry myself. I have different values. And so you get stuck in a little bit of um in a void, right? Uh, you don't really fit in anywhere. And it takes several generations, I think, um, for people to find some kind of grounding. We talked a little bit, I can't remember if it was on the podcast or in conversation when I watched uh, Passing and we were talking about Mm -hmm. this idea of, uh, you know, in in this film in America, as violently as the sort of uh, skin colors changing over generations of slave ownership and uh, sexual abuse and all this kind of stuff, people find themselves floating in these middle areas uh, where they can't identify with anything. It's depressing. How do you wrestle with that concept? I agree. I think that that is on the forefront of her mind. Whether it would have been represented in race necessarily or gender or sexuality, who knows? It it actually reminds me, there's this, uh, this TikTok I recently watched, which I found interesting where this guy had noticed the fact that when he speaks Spanish, he's bilingual. So when he speaks Spanish, his voice goes higher. And when he speaks English, his voice is lower. And it's like, why is that? But he carries himself differently depending on what language he's speaking. I think, oh, that's a fascinating thing. I mean, look at how people speak to kids or dogs, right? Or animals or, you know, for... I snap at everyone. I'm just saying, you know, uh, people, I think the wider that separation the more troubled people are, you know, when you're, if you're speaking to your, your friend and then you speak to your partner, you speak to a child, you speak to your parents. And if those are all polar inflections, then you have a, a problem with your sense of self, which is a brutal right. accusation. But I, I think that's something that I've been noticing my whole life. You know, I try my best not to do this, but it comes out, right? I mean, I'm going to speak to Helen differently than I'll speak to you. And I'll speak to Emerson differently than I speak to both of you. But I try to keep that distance as minimal as possible. Because uh, when that mm-hmm. gets too wide, who are you really? 
at the end of the day, right? If you go to a corporate job and you speak right. uh, bowingly to your boss, when you come home, do you have any confidence left? I don't know, right? These are these are problematic psychological issues that we're now talking about. As a bonus episode, you should record an episode with your son talking about this movie we, and to see what, <laughs> what his thoughts are. Oh, this movie. We, you know, we did try uh, two years ago to just do some test recordings. It's adorable. But now that he's turning eight, he's got opinions growing. It would be fun, mm. but we can't watch this movie. So it, w- it would have no, to no, be no. Encanto. You know it's bullshit, dad. This is bullshit. Yeah. He does. He does. Oh, man. He is very critical of stuff. So I'm having an undue influence. Oh, I wonder where he gets that from, Dave. Boy, <laughs> I wonder where he gets that from. You should watch us watching like Disney films and I'd be like, ah, oh, sighing. <laughs> I've noticed he started doing it too. <laughs> Talking shit. It's hilarious. He's not going to have enough friends when he grows up. So this, uh, of course, is our first film that we're watching from 1982. I'm going to skip over how you think this fits into the year because we don't know yet. But do you think this tells us anything about 1982? No. Um... Not specifically, because it's not direct to. It does tell us, implies some stuff we're talking about, like, could a intellectual black woman succeed in 1982? No. Is there room mm-hmm. for intellectual discourse on the black experience in 1982? No. Was there an indie film circuit that could get a movie like this published like it can now? I mean, you know, you talk a lot about how in the modern day, we've lost this ability to watch these types of films, but we actually watch it more now than we used to be able to. So, you know, it implies that experience. Yeah, I want to bring this back up. Let's see if either of us will remember to do this. But uh, when we speak about uh, 48 Hours, Mm -hmm. because that's Eddie Murphy's first movie. And I'm just curious, like some of the stuff that she's talked about and and lectured on, like, is there any crossover with his representation inside of that movie, which comes out the same year? Eddie Murphy's got a fascinating career. It'll be fun. He's played both sides, hasn't he? I mean, he's pantomimed Mm. the worst and the best. And he's done everything from slapstick to uh, drama. He's a very interesting man. We're done here. The Machine has said that we do have to wrap things up here. So just to move on to our next segment called Critics' Choice. This is the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought of at the time this film was released. Funny enough, there was no critical response (laughs) at the time of this release. Which means that Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael both were not able to actually give their opinions. So therefore, two contemporary reviews to us... This is Angelica Jade Bastian from Vulture, who uh, is a black woman herself. She writes, Watching Losing Ground for the first time, I couldn't help but wonder about the films Collins could have made if she had had the structural support, money, and good health to do so. How would her voice have developed if she didn't figure into the cruel lineage of black women creatives? Minnie Ripperton, Lorraine Hansberry, and Claudia Tate come to mind. Undone at a fairly young age before their talents could reach full bloom. In her marvelous essay on Collins' work for Lit Hub, Danielle Jackson considers this potential legacy, writing, It seemed their earthly bodies could not sustain the fire of their gifts and the toll against external stressors that threatened to keep them silent. As a fellow black woman creative, it's a theory that chills me. The film ends in a way few films about black life do, on a note of ambiguity. Black people are emotionally tangled, intelligent, stylish, hungry, barbed. In losing ground, they are neither saints nor sinners. They are achingly, beautifully human. So that's what she had to write. I thought that was really well uh, communicated. Great writing. Yeah. Which is, you know, probably uh, we should have had a, a, a black woman's voice on this podcast, <laughs> to, to be really yeah. honest. I actually know somebody who would have had a, a great opinion about this, but... Thanks for telling me yeah, now, so Dave. It's like uh, January 22nd. 
right? We're we're getting <laughs> yeah, our ass yeah. kicked on scheduling here. So I, I I refuse to take blame on this. You chose this to be our first movie. It's your fault. I did. <laughs> so Pauline Kael could not review this movie. So I t- picked Charles Mudeda from The Stranger. Though intellectual, the film does find moments for the stir of sexual desires and the pleasures of salsa dancing. It's by no means an exaggeration to say that Losing Ground is one of the most important original American films of the second half of the 20th century. You really must watch it, for it is nothing but criminal that the work of this kind of genius is practically unknown. In an age, and I should have pointed this out, this was from, uh, yeah, from 2015. In an age, the Obama age, when with good reason there is so much talk about race, it nevertheless comes as a relief to see a film by a black director that's devoted to the higher question of the existential condition of humans. Well, Dave, I think this comes to the question we ask every week. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? What do you have to say? Uh, yeah, this is so hard. It's culture, culturally relevant, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Does it hold up? That's tough, you know. And I think this is a sweet back thing. It's not a movie that will succeed commercially. Even if you release it now with all the context, people won't go and pay money to see this other than nerds like us and and film critics. So in a wide release, Metacritic will still have 1,500 people commenting on it, maybe. Well, and you can even see that. Even in that Rotten Tomatoes, like I I know it's only 50 people that we're talking about here, but still. 30%. 31% versus the 100% critic score. That's your disconnect that you're seeing there. So uh, I think it's, you know, it doesn't really hold up as a feature film, whatever that means abstractly, but it's a movie that anybody listen to this, if you listen to our ramblings uh, you need to see this movie yeah it's yeah. a must see yeah, yeah you need to do it see it I, I i agree with that i think i'm uh, yeah I, I agree with you in this case so we do need to get to rating this film but before we do that's what dave and i thought what do you think you can send any feedback to kyle and dave vs the machine at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter or instagram with the handle kdvstm we also release two videos each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie we've talked about that week. So on Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini review of that film. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com kdvstm. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in our show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. What uh, what name are we going to register our charity under? Because we could really use that uh, $100,000 donation too. We should tell the viewers. Uh... Colin Dave Memorial Fund. It's uh, it's great. <laughs> so let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, uh, this is a moment of the truth. What are you going to give a losing ground out of five? I don't know. I th- I, I, I think I'm going to have to go with a must-see three. I don't think the movie itself is terribly made, but it's not a well-made movie. I think conceptually, it's one of the movies we've come across where people ought to watch it. Like Rotten Tomatoes says, I don't think everybody's going to read into it as much as we did either. So sure, I'll stay sure. at a three. I didn't, I didn't regret watching it on either level. So. so we're not as far away as I thought we were going to be, but I'm giving this a 2.5. I'm right in the middle. Like I said, I, honestly, at the end of the day, I probably don't have any desire to rewatch this movie, but I might want to dip back into her lecture every now yeah. and again. I think it's a really well done thing. So it's on Vimeo. Again, I'll leave that link down in the description. I think it's important. I think the ideas that are being brought up are, are great. But of the two movies, I'd actually recommend going and watching a short film. I think it's actually really good. 
It's a really good, well done film. Dave, of course, that means that we're going to average that up to, what is that? Uh, 2.75 is what the average is going to be, which will round down to 2.5. So currently, Losing Ground is both our best and worst movie of 1982. It's the only movie currently on the list. So we'll see how that fares over the next 52 weeks. It's not going to fare well. I will guarantee you that it is not going to be the worst movie we're going to watch this year. No, it won't be the worst one. It'll be one of the most important ones, at least as far as how much we talked about the themes. Let me just push this button here see what we are watching next week. (laughs) Well, I was right. It's definitely going to be the worst movie we're going to watch this uh, this year because it might be this movie called Yes, Giorgio. All I know is that it stars Pavarotti and uh, I think it was Gene Siskel who hated this movie. Oh, he, I think, put it on one of his like worst movies of all time list. Like, he just hated this movie but so much. So did he, did he million dollar duck it? That's the question. We'll see. We'll see if this becomes our million dollar duck of the season, but maybe good to get it out of the way early and then we can focus on some other better Fair. stuff. We're not giving the heavy hitters all at yeah. once. That's going to be in a few weeks we get into, yeah, if you're looking ahead, into the heavy hitters. 1982 is a big year. Oh, oh, good. It looks like uh, Ralph is here with my shipment of arcade machines. So um, just, just, just back it up in here. Just back. Yeah, just we're, yeah you're good. Okay, good. Ralph, is that the best? Deep yeah, that's the Dave. best eighties name you come up. <laughs> Karate Kid, is it Ralph Macchio? I guess there were more Ralphs back then. Yeah, it, that literally is Ralph Macchio, who would like have been ten, twelve at the time. <laughs> you like, asshole. Whatever, he did a job. He needs, he needs to learn the crane kick. Perhaps. But have I introduced you to Robot Jesus?